Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and welcome back to my favorite time of the week. And as part of the Inspiring Leadership series, I'm really pleased to have David Richmond, CBE. David uh, finished his career in the military as a full colonel. Um, his CBE was for services to the wounded, and he is one of the Army's most uh, senior wounded servicemen. He was a lieutenant colonel at the time that he was wounded, and he'll be talking about that later on but he's currently the director of the Office of Veterans Affairs in the Cabinet Office, which is very interesting. 26 years uh, service in the military in a variety of roles, including being the commanding officer of the Royal Regiment of Scotland, um, really badged what we used to know as the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders, and um, Staff College and uh, Cranfield MA and a variety of things. And now among the many different things that he does, uh, which are all very interesting to do with resilience uh, and coaching and leadership, teamwork. David, it's great to have you on the series. You were recommended and I'm really delighted to have you here. That's a real pleasure. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you. So let's begin with talking about now. Um, tell us about your role in the Cabinet Office and some of the interesting aspects of that. Yeah, it, well, the Office for Veterans Affairs was created, um, well, it was announced last July, so just over a year ago. Uh, mm. And then we, we started to move into post in October, middle of October. So in effect, we're not yet a year old. But I think it was a, a, sort of a, a statement of intent by the government to say, look, we, we, we need to shift how the, how the UK looks after its veterans uh, and provide a focal point in government which can begin to bring greater coherence and coordination to the range of services that veterans receive um, uh, from different government departments. While also, I think, getting our arms out and around all those other organisations in what I would describe as the veterans ecosystem, who support veterans in one way or another. Um, and that, of course, includes the third sector. It includes the private sector, too, with um, opportunities they present, and academia. And, of course, our international allies. So um, the role is, is to bring real coherence to that uh, and to deliver on the vision, which is the government's vision, which is to make the UK the best country in the world to be a veteran. And mm. I think that's a really, really good vision because it's really, it's aspirational. And, and I've always felt if you're going to have a vision, it needs to be an aspirational one. Um, and um, and it's, it's short and therefore you can remember it. And mm. all of those things I think are really important. Um, and, um, and part of the work we're setting out on doing now is to, I mean, I think that if we're going to deliver on that, you need more than the government to, 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 to line up behind a vision like that. It has to include, I think, um, an alignment behind it with, by the, the third sector, the private sector and academia too. You make it the nation's vision and why mm. should, why, why not? Uh, and then collectively we can, we can work to try and deliver, make the UK the best country in the world to be better. So I think that's at the heart, that's the heart of the role to, to deliver on that. Vision. Yeah. Yeah. And it was also very interesting. Um, when I, I wrote my first book, Inspiring Leadership, uh, Richard Dan, encouraged me to, to give any of the profits to Help for Heroes. Now Help for Heroes is an organization you uh, worked in for 10 years and also helped with the Invictus Games. Tell us a little bit of, about that organization and, and how it was filling a massive gap that um, 
people like Richard and others saw, where we weren't looking after the servicemen when they were coming back, or bloodied and covered in dust, to be stuck in a ward with just other people and, and not understanding what they'd just been through as they woke up covered in dust and blood and found themselves next to some, some other people and the nurses were doing their best, but they didn't understand what these people had been through. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think, you know, I, I was, I had a great time. I worked, I worked at Healthy Heroes for seven years. You know, I was involved with them as a sort of beneficiary before that. So I suppose in, for 10 years up to the point I left, I'd been involved with HRH in one way or another. Um, you know, it met a need. It met a very evident need at the time. And I, I, I think, you know, and this is a very personal view. I think the, the UK PLC, UK at large, had forgotten that if you send uh, service men and women off to dusty parts of the world to fight wars, there are going to be consequences. There's going to be very human consequences. And people will come back broken in one way or another. And I think we'd forgotten about that. Mm. Uh, and therefore, it came as a bit of a rude shock when... when um, wounded servicemen and women started coming back and, and of course tragically um, uh, those who'd lost their lives were coming back too and it, it was a real wake-up call I, I, I think that what, what Health for Heroes did was it, it saw it saw that need a gaping need and Bryn Parry and Emma Parry um, I mean inspirational people both of them actually saw a need and, and not only saw it and sort of scratched their head about it then went and did something about it mm. And, and that was so, so important. You know, they actually acted on what they saw. Uh, and they met a, a, a huge need and tapped into, I think, that classic British um, reserve, which is there was, a huge, there was a huge amount of support for British servicemen. Uh, you just needed to give people a bit of a prod to remind them first. But once you did, it was there. And it was there in spades. Yeah, um, and it was a an, an extraordinarily exciting time to be part of it as an employee. You know, I had the privilege, and I'll always call it a privilege to to be asked to to create the recovery services for Health for Heroes, which was changing from being a fundraising and grant giving charity mm. to to um, also adding to it a service delivery element, mm. and that was the bit which I was asked to come and create. And, and, right. Um, and I, it's great. I mean, I, I was I was given huge freedoms to go and do that, and and, and loved every moment of doing so. Um, and um, and and I think one of the great things about it was it was because it was a very new organisation. It was very dynamic. It it had a a, a, a dynamic and, and demanding and um, inspirational leader who who was very clear on what we needed to do. People aligned behind that really quickly internally. Mm. Uh, and um, and things got done. Decisions were made quickly. And, and I, I reflect back, and, and, and things were produced quickly. Not only were decisions made, but they were then acted on really fast. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and um, Bryn and Emma still doing the same thing? No, they, they stepped down from Health Heroes, blimey, four, maybe four years ago now. Um, right. And of course, I, I have a hugely vested interest in, in the charity now, but they, they still live in Downton, they still live very close to it. But um, they don't have a formal role with the charity anymore. Um, but I think the, the, yeah, that, that ability to, to see a need, raise the money, make a decision, act and deliver in a, in a, in a cycle which, which was really quick, delivered things that the public could see the money was being spent on, produced real benefit for service men and women and their, and their families, crucially. But also in some ways terrified um, some of the people we were working with, you know, the, the, the Ministry of Defence is not set up to move that fast. Yeah. In yes. things like that. Yeah. 
and the speed at which it moved, you could see them thinking, oh goodness, you know, what, what, what we can't, this is, this is a beginning to alarm us. Didn't do any harm in the long run. But one of my reflections is, you know, maybe we could have, maybe we could have been a little bit more understanding of that at the time. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a, a very wise comment. And, and it was responding to a crisis and multiple mini crises uh, or crises that people were having, which leads me on nicely to the current crisis uh, that we're at at the moment, COVID-19 which many feel will last for some years to come. Um, how, how has it impacted you personally uh, and the work you do in the cabinet office or even any of the work you do generally? And then what's your advice from many years of experience of dealing with different crises, a couple of top tips you'd give to other people who are listening? Yeah, I mean, personally, I've been extraordinarily lucky. Um, you know, we, we have grown up children we, we live in the country, we've got space around us, working from home was easy because I had an office at home anyway. All those sort of things for me um, were, were relatively easy and, and I accept that totally. Um, and and, um, and it, what for me it did was it, it saved me having to commute to London a few times a week, which, which in many ways is great. Um, but, you know, I appreciate that I look into my team and we're not all in that same position. You know, in the team, we've got people who, you know, one of my team's got four children, right? you know, the, the youngest of which are seven-year-old twins. Well, um, you know, that, that puts you in a very different position to the one I'm in. You know, we've got young members of staff in shared flats, all, all sitting, sharing the Wi-Fi around the kitchen table in London with no space around them. You know, and, and so the demands on people are different and people will, will face different challenges as a consequence. Um, we haven't um, been together as a team since lockdown started at the beginning or the middle of March. Um, and, um, and actually, we've... We, what I think was, was great was actually we were already equipped to work remotely because we all had laptops and we all had mobile phones. So we essentially just activated the network that we had already and cracked on from where we are. Um, it, there was a period of time when, understandably, with COVID-19 being absolutely the government's priority, staff were redeployed to go and do other things. So we were down to, to um, a skeleton team, which meant progress was slow for a while. Um, but people have started to come back again, so we can start to make 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 progress on key things now. Um, but I think in the long run, I think that the, the consequences are we're having a proper look at, okay, what does our working routine need to look like once we get back to something approaching normal? Mm. It doesn't need to be we're all in the office all of the time. I mean, arguably, it's never needed to be that, but it sort of was that. Mm. Um, we do need a footprint in London because that's where the ministers are. But how, what's our office? So we've started that conversation around how do we, you know, what, what does our future requirement look like? Um, and, um, and, and how do we keep the sense of team, the cohesion that goes with it, while balancing remote working and, and some time in the office? And what, what sort of framework do you put around that to make that, to make that work? And we're discussing that because I think it's going to, something that's going to, going to impact everybody. So we might as well all have yeah. a... Yeah, what, what's, have a, I mean, just what would you say is a couple of top tips you think about um, leading a, a virtual team and, and a couple of things that really are crucial for other leaders who, who are at the moment leading their virtual teams. How do I make it better? That kind of stuff. What would you give us a couple of top tips from your experience? I think uh, keeping in touch. Um, but by keeping in touch, I, what I don't mean is, is speak to everybody all of the time. And I think some people have completely here. Lots of stories of people saying, well, my boss is never off the Zoom call to me. I never get anything done because he always seems to be chasing me for something. 
you don't need to do that. And if you didn't need to do it in the office, why are you doing it now? You know, that's a thing as a, as a sort of confidence thing and a comfort blanket issue. So I think there's an element of keeping in touch such that, you, you, that you, you, people know you're there and you still form this sense of team. And there's a, there's, there's a, there's a, a key part of having a clear sense of priorities um, and, um, and a means of, of, of maintaining a sort of an overwatch on those. Um, and, um, and I think then, you know, the, the, let people get on with their jobs, but while also making sure that you, you do feel you're part of the part of the same team, albeit sitting in several different parts of the country at any one time. I mean, I, I, I haven't, um, I think if you, if, if, if you are clear on what it is you're trying to achieve, it doesn't matter where you are while you're trying to achieve it. Yeah. I, I remember Austin thought when I was a, a brigade chief of staff, he was my brigade commander and a very shrewd Royal engineer officer. And he said, Jonathan, work is, is an activity. It's not a time or a place. Yes. So get the work done. It doesn't. And, and, and that was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. and people are now getting that, that work is an activity. Um, and, and if you can get your work done quickly and efficiently, great, get it done quickly and efficiently and then spend some time with the twins and the kids and the rest. But Absolutely. do you work? Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you, if you were that way inclined before lockdown, you'll find the whole adjustment easier. Yeah. If you were the other way inclined where you had to see people at their desk, you were much mm. more interested in the inputs rather than the output. Um, then this is going to be a difficult time. Yeah. Presenteeism is, is not the way to go. And, and talking about people who are inspiring and get this right, who would you pick as a couple of inspiring people who you've worked with over the years and, and the qualities that you admired in them? Um, I've got, oh, can I do more than two? <laughs> if, if you want, yeah. yeah, I've got a couple. So I um, people like a guy who has always struck me um, from day, from day dot is a chap called Hamish Rollo. I don't know if you remember Hamish Rollo. I, I know of him, but don't know. Him. Hamish was a Royal Engineer. Um, tra tragically died a couple of years ago. He was chief of staff at three UK division when I was an SO three. And he was, he just seemed to have, what inspired me about Hamish was very bright, hugely capable, or else he wouldn't have been in that role. But he also just kept life in perspective. He, he knew what was important and when it was important. And, and I give two, two sort of anecdotes to, to illustrate that. You know, one would be when we were back in, in camp and the three did, we seemed to spend an awful lot of time away. Hamish would walk around on a Friday afternoon and say, peer into offices at sort of 4, 4 p.m. and say, right, are you doing work of vital national importance? No, sir. But why are you still here? You spend plenty of time away. Go and spend some time with your family. It's a Friday afternoon. And, and you think, okay, well, that, and that, that stuck with me. You're keeping you're where, where your effort needs to be and when it needs to be there. And the, the other one, which has always, always made me laugh, actually, is we were, we'd just completed a big divisional CPX. And in the days of producing div divisional op orders, which were like encyclopedia. Mm. And this was all printed off in the repro wagon and put into a satchel. And the dispatch rider turned up, took it, put it in his satchel, and off he went to the brigades, wherever the brigades were, in dark woods somewhere. Now Hamish turned to us all and said, right, who is the most important man in the brigade, in the division right now? And all the SO3s looked at each other, well, the GOC, so I suppose. I said, no, he, no, he isn't. It's that bloody dispatch rider, because if he falls off his bike at the first corner, we will never know about it until nothing happens at 6 a.m. tomorrow. <laughs> um, and that was his sort of, he, he just brought that sort of lightness of touch and humour to just everything he did. 
while also yeah. knowing that he he had the highest of standards, he expected things to be right. But if you were if you were managing that, he was a d utterly delightful man. So that's one. Mm -hmm. um, then there's there's um, there's a lady I've worked with um, very recently in the last couple of years called Molly Marty, who's an American um, psychologist. And Molly founded and is CEO of the, the National Resilience Institute. Uh, and um, and together we've co-founded an organisation called World Maker International, which which works with um, in the field of human resilience, both with uh, in the United States, United Kingdom, and and overseas. And in fact, only last last week we ran a virtual summit in, with Zimbabwe, um, taking into Zimbabwe the techniques around human resilience and leadership, and how leaders can create the right environment for humans to, to be resilient and to thrive. And Molly is just an utterly delightful, hugely talented um, expert in her field who has a knack of making everybody feel at ease um, and, and conveying complex messages in remarkably simple ways. Um, and um, I picked those two. And, and if, I had, mm. if, I was allowed, if, if I was allowed a third, there's a, there's a one lovely third. chap. Yeah. One third, called Jeff Buchanan, who is a, a retired US Army three-star, commanded the US Army of the North, at San Antonio, Texas, recently retired. Um, in his time, he also commanded the US um, uh, deployment to Haiti at the time of the hurricane and their response to that. Uh, and um, a, 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 a very understated scholar of leadership mm. and a man of incredible wise words who, you know, if you ask for advice, you're going to get really good advice. Mm. And uh, so those three, I could give yeah. you a lot more. No, no, that's great. And, and clearly with people like Hamish and also Jeff, um, they led teams and, yeah. and uh, good teams, you'd imagine. But also, I suppose at times they take toxic teams and have to turn them around. What, what about you? If you've had to take a team, turn it around, and, and you found you had a, a really high-performing team in a, a challenging situation, what was it that... that took it from toxicity where it wasn't working well, what was going wrong and what, 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 uh, what did you do to make it a much better team? Cause it's easy to take on a good team and just carry on running a good team. But when you've got one where it's just toxic and it's not working and you make some changes and it does, what, yeah. what was your learning? Um, that's a really interesting question. I think there's, yeah, there was a, a team I, which wasn't, working as well as it should um, this is in my military time because I think it didn't it had sort of lost confidence in itself so when I spent a bit of time looking to two or three weeks just sort of gazing at this the, the, this this unit and thinking okay how what is it there's something there's something that's not right well what's not right and what I came around to was it 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 wasn't confidence of its place uh, in its formation it wasn't it is sort of lost and that's of luck lock last lock Starting and that lack of confidence mm. had percolated through so many other things. Mm. Um, and then what it reflected out as being was, was into um, a, an overemphasis of badges and buttons and bells and whistles and all those sorts of things. Because, of course, they never change. And they're actually quite easy to, to get behind, aren't they? Because they're there. That's what they are. So... Um, and and I, the more I looked into this, the more I discovered that actually what, what it, the lack of confidence had come from 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 fighting the brigade rather than wanting to be part of it, yeah. Um, and from um, too tight a grip on really capable commanders. 
So to give it some line, we, we trained hard, we went back to basics, we built the confidence up. Actually, what I was, all I was doing was reinforcing they could do this. I wasn't teaching them when they knew. Yeah. Built confidence and from confidence came, sorry, built competence and from competence came confidence. And, the, and back came the other, some metaphorical swagger about actually we are quite good at this. Yeah. And we are, you know, so I, you can see the sort of where that went to. But, but I'm, also, I'm also hearing, David, that you worked on attitude because knowledge mm. and skills you can develop. But, but attitude, if attitude stinks, that's quite a hard one to change, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I think also yeah, that, that plays to the point I was actually going to make. I think one of the attitude takes time to change. And so much of attitude. I mean, I've always felt that, that every, almost just about every military organization or civilian organization I've looked into over lots of years now, begins to take on the persona of its leader. And one of the things I, this is some years back, there was a, there was a company commander, um, not, not when I was CEO, but a company commander I knew, who his, his boys, his, his team, his company had worked out really quickly that it was all about him. And while he had a, while he had a really good company, they didn't do anything extra. They did what they were asked to do and they did it very well, but they didn't do anything more. And then you can compare and contrast that with some of the other companies and they who had much more um, team-based leaders, servant leaders, if you like, and their teams would have done anything for them. They really would have dug out blind. And there was a real difference. You could see the difference. You could sense it. They had worked out, and I think this plays into the business community too. Well, I know it does. Their team had worked out in about two nanoseconds, that it wasn't about them; it was about him. Mm. Um, and and as soon as you as soon as you you have come to that conclusion, you're disinclined to work too hard for them. Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's very true. Uh, and hopefully, he learned from that mistake. But uh, what about your learning from mistakes? If you were to pick a story as a, a leader in the making, <clears throat> uh, it could be recent could be a long time ago, when, when you just got it wrong as a leader, but you learned something from it, which is quite profound and has changed the way you lead now. Mm. Yeah, it probably is. It's, it's, I, mean, I think we're always learning as leaders, aren't we? But no, I don't think we're ever the finished product. Um, I remember once, I mean, it, it, it's, it probably sounds relatively minor, but it, 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 it wasn't, I didn't feel at the time. I'd, this was a post-Afghanistan and I was giving our sergeants mess two two and a half days of of intense training and they had worked really hard and they were knackered and we were going to a dinner night later that night and we got them all out at the end of the the final um the final event which was a hugely physical event and they were chinned and i there'd been a couple of things during it which which i wasn't had sort of taken up too much of my mind because they weren't they weren't what i, I didn't see what i wanted to see wasn't that they were bad. It's just, I think, in reflection, I didn't see what I wanted to see. Um, and when I spoke to him at the end, I could, I sensed as I was talking that I was getting it wrong. And you could almost see, you could almost see the deflation as I was, uh, as I was going on. But anyway, I, I drew things to, uh, to all because we were going to the mess for dinner and they had to go and get dried off and shower and all this kind of stuff. And I was walking back, I looked at my quartermaster who was with me. I said, um, I didn't get that quite right, did I? No, you bloody didn't. 
Um, right, okay, fine. Um, I'd, I'd really deflated them after two and a half days of really working hard, and there'd been so much more that was good than there was, I mean, 10 times more that was good than was bad. And I'd emphasize the two negative things, overly so. So I went to them, I thought, well, I'm not quite sure I'm gonna do this, but anyway, I went to the mess later, and I thought I'd better, I wasn't due to get to speak, but I thought, right, I need to say a few things here, because there's a bit of regain to be done. Um, and, um, and I said, I said, right, I'm gonna take two minutes of your time. And I just said, look, we don't always get these things right, and neither do I. Um, and um, yeah, here's perhaps what I should have said um, and put things into rather more perspective than I had left them earlier. Um, and, um, and I look back on that and I think actually, uncomfortable though it was for a few minutes, it was exactly the right thing to do because they needed to know that I knew I hadn't got it right. Yeah. And not only did I know I hadn't got it right, but I was willing to put my hand up and say, I'd got that wrong. And, um, and uh, this is what I should have left yeah. you with. David, that, that is so special. And I, I think of um, another lady who's going to be appearing on the series later, Philippa Snare, who's the senior vice president for the Trade Desk, uh, which is like Facebook, but for businesses. Yeah. And uh, when she was the CMO in, in uh, Microsoft, and then she went on to Facebook, I was sitting with her, I was her coach, and um, she was a bit grumpy about something and she criticized a couple of people. And she went away in the break and she thought about that and she did just you don't she deflated them and she came back and her boss was there the global cmo sitting in but and she said look richard and uh, and um jane i just want to say i'm sorry i i think i was unduly harsh i didn't recognize what you had done and i got it wrong i'm really sorry about that i apologize and they, and they looked really relieved and and very grateful it, it completely changed the mood and because she's a great team builder. Yeah. But afterwards, uh, I overheard her boss taking to one side and saying, never, ever admit when you make a mistake like that. You should not have done that. Philip went, no, I should. That's exactly what I should have done. And the thing was, Philip was a great leader. Her boss was a micromanager and it's all about face and bluff and uh, inauthenticity. Whereas Philip was really, and remains really raw and authentic and she admitted it like you did so great and and from learning from mistakes what about darkest moments in your life uh or your personal life your work or your personal life yeah i mean i you know i think the the first one i said i mean I, is any time that you when you're commanding soldiers and they get hurt seriously hurt that's pretty dark and I think, you know, when I reflect back on my um, time in command, on just let's just say Afghanistan, because it was the last one. You know, part of my calculus in planning an operation was, you know, if, if, if we lose people doing this, will it have been worth it? You know, the, the easy answer, well, it's never worth it. Well, well actually, the, in those situations, you need to have that consideration. You know, is, is the view of the top worth the climb? Is that, is that sort of estimate, isn't it, at times? What I didn't ever do was if people come back with life-changing injuries as a consequence of this, will it have been worth it? Um, and of course, there's no right answer to that. Um, and that's probably why I didn't ask it, although I didn't think of it consciously in that way. But whenever it happened, it was those were dark moments. And, and the bit I found strangely, even now I find it so slightly strange, I found it, I was, it was at its darkest 
when I knew that something had happened, whether it had been a bereavement, as I killed in action, or a, or a serious wounding, and I knew their family didn't yet. There was a bit of, I, I felt that, that that just felt deeply uncomfortable, that I knew that somebody was about to have that dreaded knock at the door, um, of, um, that um, you know, every, every military family lives in fear of, actually, and you, you just you hope that it's never going to be you. Um, so I found those those were difficult, personally very difficult times. And then of course it happened to me. And it is, it is dark, you know. It's not a it's not a great moment when you get when you get wounded. And can you um, can you explain exactly what happened and uh, yeah. how how you were injured? Yeah, we had a, a battle group operation um, to the north of Musikala, uh, and because of the battle group operation, battle group attack was out, um, and I was out with them. And having cleared through a village, we. Um, just gone firm and uh, as we were resetting for the next the next phase which was down into the green zone um, we were contacted by some Taliban who managed to come in behind us um, and, and lucky for them what was right in front of them as they as they rounded the compound 70 meters over my left shoulder behind me was bat group tack I mean they had no way of knowing that but it's just the way it worked out anyway the, the godsend for us was they they all they opened up on automatic all four of them the constant also rounds went everywhere, but sadly, the, one of them hit me um, and um, went in through the back of my right leg and, and out through the front um, and took 10 centimeters of my right femur with it. And not that I was conscious of that at the time, I knew it broke my leg, but I didn't realize quite how, how badly it had, had damaged it. Um, so I then went through the whole sort of um, lying in a heap in the middle of a firefight. Um, guys crawled out, did the first aid, dragged me around the corner behind an American Humvee. Um, then there was a sort of um, a moment when they dropped. Uh, we had some F-16s of, on, on target with us. They took out these guys with a what felt like a distinctly danger close mission at the time. Uh, but I suspect my sense of perspective was somewhat askew at, the, at that stage. And there began, you know, a, a sort of four-year rehab and recovery and reconstruction. Um, emotionally, was the hardest because, of course, you've trained your guys to go. Um, in, intensely train them to go to Afghanistan. You lead them when you're there, and then look what happens halfway through. You get taken out, and you're now in the emotionally for me. I was in the wrong place. I I, I should have been there commanding the commanding the the the, um, the operation, and instead I'm lying in a heap being tended to by my own guys. Um, and that I found really really hard. Um, uh, and uh, to cut a long story short, I was then taken away off to the HLS and. Um, the RSM came back and, and was part of the team who dumped me on the floor of the Chinook. Um, and I was sort of, I was in and out of consciousness a little bit, but I do remember a very distinct memory of him just shouting at me over the, over the um, noise of the, the rotors. And I think look, what I took him to have said was, you know, we'll be all right. You know, just, just good to go. Big thumbs up. And he ran off. And at that moment I thought, well, I mean, that's it. You know, for, for you, Tommy, the war is over sort of moment. It was that sort of sense. And, and of course, at that stage, everybody's sort of leaning over you and starting to do whatever they need to do medically. Um, and before you know it, you're sort of knocked out and off you go. Um, but I found that that period of time, that, and then the sort of back in Selyuk when the battalion was still, was still fighting in Afghanistan, was really difficult. Just that sense of being in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were some, yeah, some dark, dark times and all of that. But I think what drew me through it was I, I fixed my mind on, you know, this is, 
this is going to take a long people say you know this is going to be a marathon not a sprint all this good stuff and they're right it is going to be a marathon not a sprint but the, the difference i'd offer is with injury is a, a marathon you generally plan on entering you know how long it is it's 26.2 miles um and um and you've done some training together so it's all very definable this sort of injury you didn't plan on it happening it isn't 26.2 miles you don't know how long it is and you haven't you know there's no sort of preparation you've done beforehand other than you hope you're pretty fit before you get into it mm. and therefore you're the ups and downs of a sort of a complex recovery are, are they're pretty hard and your family ride that whole roller coaster with you um and it's not a linear journey um and the, you know i had one setback which not me back <clears> just a, just about a year um and yeah it's really, really tough and it's a test your mental resilience your fortitude your and mm. I, I planned on you know, i gave myself some goals I, said, I want to get i want to get back to being able to exercise i want to be able to play with my children and i want to go back to service well, i didn't go back to service but i managed to do the other two um and i thought if i fix my sights on that several years away although i didn't wasn't particularly conscious of it years away I, I just knew it was a long way away i just need to ride the waves as i go but just keep looking at this. You don't get, don't get depressed at every dip because there's going to be lots of those. And that's rather how I sort of took the journey. And I was very lucky to have a very supportive family. So I described them as my stabilizers. So when there was a bit of a wobble going on in one way or another, um, they were there and they sort of prop you up. And, and sometimes it's an arm around your shoulder and sometimes it's a slap on the, slap on the ear. You know, they, yeah. they judge that better than anybody. And, and what now, David? Can you can you walk normally or do you need assistance yeah. do you need a chair no no i've, I've done really well out of it and i think there's a uh, so i i back to exercise i can ride a bike i can run i can swim um wow. not very pretty but i can do those things um i don't have any quads on one leg which makes bike riding a bit hard when legs get tired um mm. and actually and i say this only because i need, i needed to do this for me but i i, I did an iron man what um, 11, 11 months after my final surgery you are and nuts. I look back on you it are now, nuts. and I think you were a t total idiot. You know, I mean, it just looks ridiculous. But but actually, I needed to do it for me. Yeah, I needed to prove to me. It wasn't for anybody else. It wasn't to showboat to anybody. It was for me. I needed to show prove to myself that it to to, to a very large extent I was back. Um, I don't think I necessarily, if I was being brutally honest realized how much how important it was to me to do that mm. i wanted to do it because I'd, i've always been in, into doing challenging things but so, so it wasn't taking your analogy it's not a sprint it's a marathon james yeah. cameron when i interviewed him the other day he said it's actually like an ultra triathlon what you've been through but you just don't know how long the swim and the bike ride and the run is and there's yeah. the transitions yeah. was that not a bit more like the analogy of I don't know what we're going yeah. through in COVID now. It's a bit like a ultra triathlon or any kind of crisis anybody goes through because you just don't know the transitions or how long each of the bits are going to be. And you're swimming in dirty water and people are elbowing you and, you know. Whatever. All those things. And then that's where I think it's so important both then and, and actually it's, a, it's actually a great um, link to, to so COVID, isn't it? What will get get you? me and i think lots of others through COVID is having that long-term vision where do we want to be when all this when all this finishes whatever finishes means 
and, and let, you know, we can we can get really hung up on definitions of stuff. What do you mean by finished? What do you mean by this? But actually, what what, what do you as you go through this? Where do you want to be on the other side? You know, whenever the new normal comes into place, and none of us actually know what that's going to be. So let's not um, let's not waste too much energy trying to work that out. Mm. But personally and professionally and domestically and all those, where do you where, where do you want to be? What what opportunities lie inside this? this sort of nasty COVID box, what, what, what can you grab out of this and go and do something with? Um, and I th that's what I find so frustrating about, um, about people getting um, really adversarial around the sort of the COVID guidelines because you dive into the detail of every single one of them. What's the overall message? Use your common sense. That's what the message is. Don't infect others. Don't pass it on. And but but get into the you know, it's it's how do you wrap this up in something that people can can really hold on to? Very much. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and moving from some dark moments, let's lighten things up a bit. What about you know you've been brought up with twenty six years of military humour, and now you're in business. Um, yeah. What about what what story would you tell of of humour? I'm just going to close the window. It's a bit noisy. Um. <laughs> There's almost too many to put you, to put my hand on. Not all of which are broadcastable, I have to say. Um, but that's, that's that's soldiers, isn't it? I think one that's always stuck in my mind is many years ago. Was it the late eighties? There was an ambulance strike, wasn't there? Yeah. And we were based at Oakingdon Barracks in Cambridge, and um, we took on responsibility for the Hertfordshire and Bedfordshire ambulance services. There were two different services, and the ambulance staff were on strike but the ambulance officers were in a different union and therefore they came to train the guys um and i remember a couple of hundred guys being put into the lecture theater at open barracks a bit dark a bit hot people sort of fidgety and all a bit smelly and um the resociani thing was on the was on the floor at the front and the two two ambulance officers in their green boiler suits turned up and introduced themselves and then they, they said to this dark audience We'll start with an easy one. What's the first thing you do when you come across an unconscious casualty? And you just thought, oh God, what's it? Well, what is going to come forth now? And then from the back of the audience was, steal his wallet. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought, oh, brilliant. We're off to an absolute flyer. Uh, lovely. No, thank you. Um, okay, and, and, and from humor, what about your proudest moment um, in your life? Uh, and your career, what would you pick? Oh, proudest moment. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm the very proud father of two gorgeous daughters. So, you know, those very proud of, of them. In, in life, that's the, you're very proud of, of having two great children and a, and a gorgeous wife too. And I think in my sort of, and you wish, you, know, you try and, support them through into their, they're about to, you know, they're entering into the world of work, you know, and you wish, you hope that they have the you know, success and you do what you can to support them. Mm -hmm. In terms of my sort of professional career, I suppose there's a couple, there's a couple of bits, which one is you being, um, being selected to be a CEO. I, I was incredibly, you know, that's one of my proudest moments. And I think, um, you know, anybody who says that they didn't enjoy being commanding officer shouldn't have been doing it. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, there's plenty of other people who would have loved it. Uh, it oh, it's a huge privilege. It's a wonderful, wonderful 
thing to be able to do and, and even more of a privilege to take them on operations. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and of course, you know, being, being awarded a, a, a CBE was, was icing on the cake. I mean, I'd, not something I'd ever, I mean, I don't think any of us ever expected, do we? But it no. was totally out of the blue. Uh, no. And, um, and what a, a great, a great honor and, um, wonderful to go. And, and I was, I was very lucky that it was also, I was received it from the queen. Yeah. So, um, and, it, and they do it so well, of course, you know, you, it's such a wonderful family day. And I think it's a, it's justifiable reward for not just for the person who happens to have the medal hung around their neck, but also all the people who've supported them along the way. Yeah. Uh, very nice. And, and what about, um, you know, secret of leadership. If one thing, you wish you'd known about leadership right at the beginning. If someone had told you, what would you what would you say? Oh, I wish I'd known this, and and you'll pass it on to others, and you go, this this is your secret of leadership. Oh gosh, yeah. Um, I think right at the very beginning, be yourself. Mm-hmm. And the fur and and the further into your career you go, also now I felt this, the more you are yourself, probably because the more you know yourself you know who you are a bit more. Um, uh, and that struck me, and I, to take a slight, slight um, sidetrack for a second, you know, I think that knowing yourself was so important in, in my recovery from injury, actually. You know, you, your life turns upside down. You, your career is essentially being finished, albeit it's some distance away before it actually does finish. But that was the career-ending moment. Yeah. And if you go through all these, the ups and downs, emotional ups and downs of, of recovering from injury, I was, I was lucky. I was lucky because I was 41 years old. I'd, I'd worked out who I was by then. I knew when you peeled this uniform off, I knew who was underneath. I knew who David Richmond was. Not who Lieutenant Colonel Richmond was. I knew who David Richmond was. Yeah. What I believed in, what I didn't believe in, what I liked, what I didn't like, all those sort of mm. things. In as much as you ever, mm. you ever do, that I was confident in that. And I looked around myself, I remember looking at Hedley Court and Sally Oakwood. Um, these young lads who'd have catastrophic injuries and I thought well, you know you're 19, 20, 21 years old you probably didn't know who you were before this happened now, now you're for the sake of an example your legs have gone and your career is gone who are you now if you didn't know who you were then who are you now yeah um, and um, so knowing yourself I think is, a, is really important and I think the other thing I, I, I think you learn as you go is knowing when to follow. Because the, the bigger, the more senior you become, the bigger your teams become, the less expert you become in what they do. Mm. Um, mm. And therefore, sometimes you need to know when you just need to p- pick, pick the person who you are going to follow. And there's a trick in that, isn't there? Um, yeah, definitely is. Someone said, surround yourself with an army of giants, metaphorically taller than you in their specialist areas so that you don't actually have to work a day in your life because you've got these very competent people around you. Yeah. I was very conscious of that, that helpful heroes. You know, I had a, I had a, a senior team of 12. I, and I, I reminded myself a few times, I was the only one around that table. He wasn't expert in something, mm. Mm. but I wasn't worried about it because I knew they were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's how you, how it's you a good way, walk good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so the wisdom of that, that's one thing. We, quick fire, healthy, wealthy, and wise. What, what very quick fire would be your tip to anybody listening about keeping healthy, uh, mm. about money, 
and about a bit of wisdom that you've been given that you found very profound. Yeah, um, healthy. I mean, I, I do believe in looking after yourself. You give yourself time. You know, investing time in yourself and your, let's call it well-being, is really important. You perform better when you're rested, exercised, and well-fed, mm. uh, and and you have interests outside your work yeah. that stimulate you in other ways. Yeah, uh, and and I think that is so important. Yeah, um, yeah. good. So that's okay. the healthy bit. Yeah, wealthy. The, the wealthy bit. Um, is I, I um, I've never been, <laughs> I've never been hung up on money. It's not that I'm not. I don't feel it's important. I mean, money gives you freedom. Is the way I look at it. Um, but I, I, you know, look after what you've got. Spend it well. Yeah. But don't be miserly. You enjoy it. You can't take it with you. Yeah. Um, and, do, and do and do something. Do something good with it. Yeah. Um, um, and then, and then the wisdom, one bit of and wisdom. The wisdom, I it sort of links, um, slightly links to the. I'm, I'm going to quote my my grandmother, in in some ways is is she used to say, and this sort of links to the money bit. Um, she said, um, if 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 you know what you want, buy the best you can get. Don't spend ten pounds. Don't spend five pounds on something you don't want. Spend ten pounds on something you do want, and then look after it. Mm. And, and she was a lady who, she, she was one of 13 children. Wow, wow. Lived in a council house all of her life. Was a fishmonger, was a baker, pastry maker, dressmaker. She retrained and trained and trained all the way through her life. Uh, and was still working, running her own little business in her mid-70s. Wow. wow. Um, and was a, was a force of nature, actually. Yeah. Um, I think the thing I was, she used to go everywhere on the bus. I often used to think, you don't want to sit next to my grandmother on the bus and raise the notion of Scottish independence because she lived in the west coast of Scotland. Uh, because if you did, you were going to get the full force of her opinion on that whole thing, which was always quite uh, entertaining. Um, well, she sounds like a, a hell of a character. She left a legacy. What's, what, what's going to be your legacy? Um, what's or would you like it to be? Do you think people would say, this is, this is the legacy you might have left in your lifetime, not, not after your death? Yeah. I... I I think having, it's a difficult one. I mean, I've never been one to think about legacies much. You know, I've always believed, do, do what you're doing now to the best of your ability. Yeah, leave it better than you found it. Leave it better than you found it, um, which I sound slightly uninspiring. But, but, I, but it's, I, I'd like people to I mean, be, be good to people. You know, we, we, we live in a world where we need more friends and enemies. We also live in a world where where certain parts of society seem to be set on making more enemies than friends. Mm. Um, yeah, we've, we've, got a, we've, we've got a world which has rarely, well, has never had the techno technological capability to be more connected than it is today. Mm. Yet there are, I, I get the strong sense that rarely have we been more atomized than we are today in so many ways. And that's a slightly gloomy picture. Mm. Mm. I think, yeah, how, how, how do we... How do we use all the skills, the talents, the charm, the, the, um, the abilities in our communities, in all its different shapes and sizes and colors and creeds and sexes mm. and genders and all this kind of stuff? How do we make the, the whole greater than the sum of the parts? Great. And at the moment, you seem, to be, you seem to be trying to work out what the parts are. Yeah, no, very sound, very sound. 
And, and really for the final bit, um, two, two areas, uh, your top two inspiring leadership tips and then a book that you've enjoyed reading and, and, uh, and why people should read it. Oh, uh, leadership tips. Um, one of them is um, have a thick skin. Um, listen, but don't necessarily believe everything. And don't take too much to heart. But when I say that, there are certain things you need to know. <laughs> there are certain things hidden amongst there you need to listen to and take, you know, take note of. So there's a slightly mixed message in that, but you do need to be able to pull on your thick skin sometimes. Yeah. Because not every, not every decision you're going to make is going to go down well, but that does not mean it's the wrong decision. Yeah. It just means it's the one they didn't want to hear. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the other one is, it's got to be to be able to describe a clear vision of where you want to go. Because unless people know where you're going to, it's very difficult for them to align behind you or join, join you on that ship. Mm. Yeah. Very good. And finally, your book. Your book. Oh, my book. Which, which um, I choose a very recent one, Team of Teams by Stanley McChrystal, which is a le leadership orientated. But I think it just captures so much, actually, probably what we've touched on today along the way, you know, about yeah. Yeah. the whole being greater than the sum of the parts, understanding the abilities of each other. All those sort of things. Um, yeah. Leaders actually sitting back and letting the information flow to them rather than direction go from them. Yeah. Um, all those all those sorts of things I think is are just embedded in there, and I and I think it's such a good book for and such a such a good read too. Really I agree. Admire. I agree. Excellent. Well, Dave Richmond, CBE, thank you very much indeed. It was excellent having you on the show. Really, a, a great deal of wisdom that you shared. Most grateful, and good luck in the uh, Office of Veteran Affairs and the Cabinet Office as the Director. I'm sure there's lots to be done, but thank you for being on the series. John, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.